Uh, we, we're in this series called Creation and Fall, and really all it is is, is is trying to accomplish something that I'm trying to do each week when we open the Word, and that is to help us to think Christianly, to think rightly, to have a Christian worldview. And, and we've said all along that everyone has a worldview, everyone has a way of processing the, the, how we got here, what's wrong with the world, how, how we find salvation, how it's all going to end. We all have a worldview. Sometimes there, there's contradictions within our worldview. We want to form and conform and shape that to honor God and to reflect the truth rightly. And so we've said uh, the Bible is one story. It's a long story, but it is ultimately one story, and it's telling the story of God who created the world, that we turned our back on him, but before the foundation of the world, he planned our redemption through Jesus, and that a day is coming when he's going to restore all things. So it's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And, and for the last five weeks, if you've joined us, we've been on the first part of that story, the, the creation story, and we've seen that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, and, and out of the goodness and overflow of his grace and love and power. He speaks, and the universe comes into existence, and it is ordered, and it is good. It is very good, and that's what you need to see in, the, in creation. This world now, what we're going to see, is not how it was intended to be, but it was intended with all the goodness and, and, and uh, power and glory of God. And so we saw even last week, at, as image bearers created in God's image, it is good that God made us men and women. It was good that God gave us the, the, the institution of marriage, not just for our sakes, but to show the world what covenant love looks like, what his kind of love looks like for us. And so we've looked at creation, and what you need to find in creation is just the goodness, mercy, and and grace of God. And now we look at the second part of the story, the fall. How did things go wrong? And so if you have your Bible, we start with Genesis chapter 3 this morning. I'll read verses 1 through 7. And as I do, I'd ask you just to listen carefully. This is God's word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray before we unpack this. God, I'm just reminded every time that we open your word that there's nothing that I have to say of any value apart from your word and your spirit empowering this time. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, 
what it is you have for us in this passage. Show us, Lord, where we're in this story. Show us how uh, this is our story, uh, both corporately together as a church, but individually as well. Anoint individual phrases and sentences and points for each of us that we might be conformed into the image of your Son as a result of our time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was uh, in first grade, I had a friend, my best friend, his name was Chris Smith, and uh, uh, he lived close to the school. I bust into the school, but my parents had arranged that we could have a, a play date, and so uh, after school, I walked over to his house and, and went into his house and played with my friend, and uh, in the kitchen, I noticed on the counter a dollar. And I looked at the dollar, and I kept looking at the dollar, and, and we played some more, and I went eventually, and I took the dollar and put it in my pocket and went home. Now, at the time, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with a dollar, but uh, I, I knew this. My, my mom had opened up bank accounts for my sister and I, and we had our own bank books, and whenever we got money for Christmas or our birthday, we would put that money with our bank book. So I just did what I always did. I, I put that money with my bank book and, and left it and didn't think about it until the phone rang later that night. And uh, the, my mom answered, and uh, Chris's mom said, sorry, Mrs. Oshman, but uh, I, I just got to talk to you. I think that your son stole uh, my younger son, uh, the, my, Chris's younger brother's dollar. It was in, on the kitchen on the counter, and I think he was over here today, and he stole the dollar. So she said, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll look into it, and I'll give you a call back. And so she hung up, and she said, called me into her room, and she said, Mark, did you take a dollar from your friend's house? Said, no. <laughs> Are you lying to me? No. You better not be lying to me. I was like, Mom, I'm not lying. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, for whatever reason, well, really because of God's grace, she decided to go look in the bank book, and she found the dollar. Of course, she called, it, called me into the room, and uh, not sure what she said. That wasn't important. I'm sure it was not good. Uh, but what I remember most out of that experience is a few things. Going the next day after she had called and said, actually, my son did steal the dollar, what shame she was facing and, and what shame now I was facing, going up to my friend and saying, here's your dollar back. I remember even now, even now as I tell the story, I remember feeling shame. And, and my friend saying, oh, it's not, it's not a big deal, it's okay. But, you know, the relationship was never the same. He's no longer my best friend. Another story that I got permission to tell uh, from my sister when she was in first grade. She stole a Reese's peanut butter cup from a fellow classmate. And the school administrators, and either that or my mom, decided, man, what is, what is going on? We need to get her into a child psychologist. We lived up in the, in the mountains at the time and uh, in Conifer. And, and I remember, I remember I was three years old. I remember going to this office. I thought it was the greatest thing because in the lobby they had toys and I played with the toys. Uh, but my sister, she said, today she said, or this week, she said, I felt like a hardened criminal. They, they put me in this room, and my mom was on the other side of the door. And what could possibly cause a, a first grader to steal a peanut butter cup? And the worldview was, man, something's wrong psychologically. 
But it wasn't psychological, was it? Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Jeremiah 17.9 says that uh, the heart is wicked above all. Let me see. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested for what would be the largest securities, private securities fraud in the history of the world. He built investors out of $68 billion, him and his family. $68 billion. In 2010, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. 150 years in prison. He's 79 years old right now. Now, why do I mention that? I got seven-year-old still in a dollar or peanut butter cup, and you've got 75-year-old Bernie Madoff taking $68 billion. What's the difference? See, we can look at seven-year-old and be like, oh, that's just a, a foolish little kid. And, and we can look at 68, 70-year-old Bernie Madoff and be like, how could he? What's wrong with this guy? And what's the difference? Here's the only difference. Capacity and opportunity. What I learned about my seven-year-old self in that moment, it wasn't the first time that I stole probably, and I know for sure it wasn't the last time I stole. And even though I'm a Christian and I have uh, God's life in me, that part of me is still in me that says, I want to take what's not mine. A heart of greed, a heart of desire. There's no difference between the, my heart at seven, at 42, and Bernie Madoff's heart. And if you don't see that there isn't a difference, then you think that there are qualitatively better people than other people. But the Christian worldview says no. The Christian worldview says we are in a desperate situation, and it's a matter of capacity and opportunity to see how far this wickedness could go. And that's what this passage is telling us. The most important thing you can get out of this message this morning is to realize this. This story is not a legend, it's not a myth, it's not a fable. It is a real story in a real time and place, but more than that, this passage is a mirror to our souls. It's a mirror for you and me. You should find yourself in this story. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, the story is told that uh, the London Times ran an article and they asked philosophers and poets and authors and pastors, what's wrong with the world? And they sent in their responses and the Times printed it. And then this guy named G.K. Chesterton wrote, read, read the stories and, and he was a philosopher, he was a writer. And so he decided to write in his, his story of what's wrong with the world. And he said, dear sirs, in response to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's a Christian worldview, by the way. That's understanding what is really at the heart of the matter. Because if we only see evil as out there and not in here, then we're missing the greatest evil. So here, here's, here's another test. The most wicked, the most depraved person you know if you're honest with yourself, is yourself. And if you don't think you are the most wicked, most depraved, then you don't know yourself. Because you should. 
You, you should know what you think. You should know what you've said. You should know what you've done. And if any of us had the movie reel of our life just in the past week that revealed all of our thoughts and all of our actions and all of our, our, our words and all everything, we would run out of here and hide and probably not try to arrange our life to not see any of you again. And the rest of it would be like, man, Mark, he is wicked. I mean, did you see what he was thinking in that situation? Did you see what he said? Did you see what he did? Did you see his heart in relationship to his wife and his kids? You wouldn't sit here every week if you knew that. And I wouldn't sit in front of you either. But you have to understand that this passage is a mirror. It is about us. And so let's see. At the root of this, if we dig into this, you'll see that there is actually, while there is a million ways to rebel against God, they all come back to one root cause. We'll look at that in a minute. Let's unpack it. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, if you stop there, uh, we're like, well, who's the serpent? What is up with that? Why why can he talk? All these questions. You're going to miss the point because the point is not about the serpent. The the point isn't so much unpacking uh, the the background of of Satan and all that stuff about the serpent. The point is about you and me. And so uh, it doesn't answer all those questions. It begins to get to the heart of the matter. It says this. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say? So, so the, the, the fall, the ruin of humanity, uh, uh, the ruin of ourselves does not start with an action, but an attitude. It starts with a sneer. Satan, Satan or the serpent is not looking for information. He knows what God has said. He, he, he simply says in a sneering kind of way, a questioning kind of way, did God actually say that? He's trying to get the attitude of the heart to question God. He's like, did God say that? And we live in a time of sneer and snark, don't we? We live, we, the, the cultural air that we breathe, the, the television shows that we watch, the movies, the, the hallways of universities, uh, the, the, the cultural elites, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude of the sneer. Did God actually say, did God actually say that this is what, what marriage is supposed to be? Did God actually say that, that this is how you find salvation? Did God actually say, it's a, it's a question, it wants to create an atmosphere. So, so more times than not, people walk away from God, not because of a powerful argument against God, but because of an atmosphere. And because our hearts are already bent towards sin, we like to embrace the atmosphere. And, and so we, we enter into the cities and the culture, and, and the, the, the culture around says, man, you've got to be a fool to, to be a Christian. You believe that? And so if anyone comes to you and says, man, you believe all that, that, that is stupid. You just come back and say, well, well that's, that's really just an assertion trying to create an atmosphere. That's not really an argument. So do you want to share with me why you think my beliefs are untenable? Just file that away for later. But, um, but it, it's this atmosphere that say, the serpent is trying to create, an atmosphere of, man, I don't really think. It's an atmosphere of the heart, and it moves from the heart, then continuing in the heart, but also into the mind. It moves from a sneer to a lie, continuing on. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, if you remember from last week, that's not what God said. It's close, but it's not what we said. So, so what's going on here? Well, well, in whatever way, she's playing fast and loose with the word of God. Either Adam didn't uh, convey exactly what, what, what God had said, or, or in her heart, the atmosphere of the sneer is starting to turn, and you can already see that, that she's seeing God as more harsh than he actually is. She says, yeah, we can eat all the fruit, but that one, we can't, we can't eat it. We, don't, we can't even touch it. It's not what God said. And what is, what is the deal with that? Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Why the tree? But, but it, it moves from a sneer to a lie. Uh, and then at verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. It's interesting. The serpent is actually closer to what God had said anyway. Uh, the ser- God said, you will, In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And, and say, the serpent says, You will not surely die. It's a, it's a lie. It's a question. He's saying, And look what the lie is. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what he's getting at? He's getting at what is the root of all of our rebellion. He's questioning the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. That's the root of all sin, the goodness, questioning the goodness and trustworthiness of God. And so whenever we're tempted and whenever we give in, it's because, man, God, I know your word says I should not sleep with this woman who is not my wife, but I think you're holding out on me, God. I think if I go this way, I'll be more happy and more fulfilled. I know your word says not to be greedy, but to be generous. But if I buy this for me, then I'll be more happy or more fulfilled. Or if I do give it all away, I'm not sure, God, that you will be there for me in the end, that I'll have all that I need to survive. It's questioning the goodness and the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. That's the root of all of our rebellion. It's the root of every sin. It's saying, did God actually say, is God really for me? And we begin to think, no, God's not really for me, so I've got to look out for myself. And so I, I want this, and I want that, and I know God doesn't say that, but, but I, I don't believe God is for me. He's, they're questioning God. Now, they, they don't have any reason to question God except for this temptation. It moves from a sneer to a lie, and then it goes to the saddest verse maybe in the whole Bible. Verse 6 says, well, before that it says, and you will be like God. He's saying, you know, it's not enough just to be a creation. It's not enough to be uh, an image bearer. It's not enough to represent God's reign and rule in the universe, to be a, a viceroy of God. You can be like God. That's ultimately what we want. That's what we all want. We want to be our own God. We want to be in control of our own destiny. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want praise and honor and glory to come to us. And so we are challenging God, his rule and his authority. And then verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, that's the first thing she sees. She fixates her eyes on this one tree that she can't partake of good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
Don't you just want to go back in time and, and go into the garden and be like, Eve, what are you talking? Why are you fixated on this thing? You saw that it's good, but all of creation is good. Have you not noticed you're in paradise? The universe is good. The, the stars and, are awesome. The, all the other trees are amazing too, Eve. So just take your eye off that. And then when it's just, and, and, and delightful for the eyes, uh, and the tree, uh, well, so, I'm sorry, <laughs> and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Eve, don't you know you and Adam get to walk with God? You want to be wise? Just fear God and, and be in relationship with your creator. That's how you get wise. Not through this tree. It's a, it's a false promise built on a faulty premise. She took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So what's the deal with the tree? I mean, we understand some of the other laws, like don't, don't commit murder, don't, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Like, we understand how that, that would help create a better society and humanity. But, but fruit? What's going on with that? What's at the issue here? Here's the issue. God, in his majesty and glory, creates the universe. In his majesty and glory, he imprints his image on you and me. And he says, you are my viceroys. You are to represent my reign and rule. And we can have this wonderful relationship, love relationship, where we get to uh, forever enjoy all of creation. But understand this. You are created. You're not the creator. And so just as an as, as a example of you submitting yourself to the will of God, even if you don't understand it, and saying, God is God and I am not, there's one rule. It's an easy rule. Just understand your place in creation. You, you have a glorious place in creation, but understand you're a creator. You're a creature, not a creator. And if you're okay with that, it'll be awesome. But she wasn't okay with that. She believed the sneer. She believed the lie. She decided she wanted to make herself like God. She took the fruit. She ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her. The, the Hebrew literal, literally means was elbow to elbow with her. Now, the Bible, throughout the Bible, uh, the weight of the fall and the responsibility of the fall does not fall on Eve. It falls on Adam. And, and why is that? Because Eve, she's tempted. She's drawn away. There's a process there, at least, in, re in her rebellion. But Adam is full-on rebellion, just waiting to rebel against his creator. And in his passivity, he's like, oh, well, God said you're going to die. You eat it first, Eve. Oh, you're not dead. Give me some of that. Maybe, maybe the sitcoms are not so wrong about the Homer Simpson kind of idea because he's an idiot just sitting there letting his wife, he should have come in and crushed the head of the serpent, but he didn't. And the fall happens. And so how do, we, how do we make God say, God, no, you are God and I am not because we, we rebel against that. We all rebel against that. And there's a million ways to rebel against that. You know, rebellion can look different. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. It should really be titled the prodigal sons. There's two sons. There's an older brother. He's religious. He's righteous. He's moral. 
But his heart gets exposed in the end of the story. And then there's a younger brother, and he says, I don't want anything to do with the goodness and grace of my father. I'm going to take what's mine and go sleep with prostitutes and go live life to the fullest as I see it. And we think, well, if we had our choice to raise one or the other, I'll take the older brother. They both go to hell because they're both not trusting in the goodness and the grace of God. Yes, the the younger brother, his, his looks really bad, but the older brother may be worse. In his morality and in his self-righteousness, he's, he's using it as a tool for people to give him things, to honor him, to, to give him what's coming to him. And we do this all the time. If, if, our kid, if we can't make our kids Christian, we can at least make them the older brother, right? You know, when my kids were little in Okinawa, they, they would go to... Uh, uh, a kids program. It, it had a lot of good things for them. It had some scripture memory. It had all, all sorts of things. But, but I always see this in kids ministry, and this is why we're so careful about kids ministry because it's so much easier to make self righteous little kids than people that love the gospel because we can't do that. And so uh, in this program, uh, each week the kids would get stars, and already my radar is going up. Like, you get little gold stars, but, but if you got enough stars, you get this fake money, and at the end of the year, you get to buy stuff at a store. And so some of it, I was like, okay, I can deal with it. If you, if you do your scripture memory, uh, then you're going to get a star, and, and, and then if you get enough stars, you get to buy at the store. But one of the questions every week was, did you obey your parents? And my kids then were for us, like, do, do I get to, to, to buy more stuff at the end, or am I honest? <laughs> because they never, for a whole week, obeyed their parents. And none of the other kids did either. And we went into the, we're like, hey, what, what's with this question? Well, we're trying to get them to understand and obey their parents. I'm like, that's good, but it's also bad. Because <laughs> you're tying it to a reward of self-righteousness. And we don't want them to have any part of that. They're like, okay, we won't ask your kids. We'll just give them the star every week. I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, even recently, my kids were involved in another thing that was a Christian youth thing. And and after the whole thing, they they went to the party afterwards, and there were were awards for what they had done and performed. And um, I said, that's fine. I picked them up, and I'm driving them home. I'm saying, hey, how how was the the party? And they're like, oh, it's all right. I was like, well, what did you guys do? Well, they gave out some awards. I'm like, okay. And they gave out the big award. I'm like, what's the big award? They're like, it's the light award. I'm like, what's that? Well, they give it to the kid who's the most Christ-like. Like, really? Tell me about that. Well, it's really just a kid that's the most outgoing, extrovert, and, and nice. And I just said, Abby, Zoe, Hannah, I'm so grateful you didn't win that award. Like, what are you talking about? Like, not that I want you to be jerks, but listen, if you would have won that award, what would have that done to your heart? That, that, that other people would see that your niceness means you're like Christ. But, but what about the other kids? We don't know their background. We don't know their story. What about the Jesus who comes and turns over tables and in his righteousness is angry? What about that kid? He's not winning the award. No, niceness equals Christ-likeness. No, it doesn't. 
Our Christ-likeness comes from Christ, for Christ, through Christ, and that's it. And so I'm so grateful you didn't win the award. And if you win the award next time, well, we'll deal with that then. But just understand, if you have any goodness in you, if there is any righteousness in you, it comes first and foremost from Christ. You have to know that. So don't try to be nice and earn people's favor. Be nice because Jesus lives in you. And so there's this temptation, this lie that we, we, can, we, can, uh, get, we can get God to owe us something or we can rebel from You know, there's two ways to go to hell. It's the, it's the younger brother's route and it's the perfect Sunday school attendance. But we need the gospel. And so we've got the sneer, we've got the lie, we've got the tree, trusting God even when it doesn't make sense to us. Trusting God when it seems like that's going to be, go badly for us. William Borden, he was a, an heir to the Dairy Milk Borden family. 1890, he went to Yale, and at Yale, part of this upper crust of society, he decided God was calling him to be a missionary. And so he wanted to, to go to the foreign mission field, and he was ridiculed by his Yale classmates. He was ridiculed by his family, and at the, as he graduated, he gave away his inheritance, $1 million to a mission agency, and in relative poverty, moved to Cairo to begin to learn the language. Within a few weeks, he had contracted spinal meningitis, and a few weeks later, he was dead. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, as they went into his room and they found on just an ordinary scrap of paper these words, he said this, no reserve no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. He wasn't writing, God, but I did all this for you. What about all the money? Why are you taking me now? No, I'm not saying he was sinless, but in this moment he was able to step off the throne and say, God, you are God and I am not, and you can do what you will, and I have no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. That's, that's understanding what Adam and Eve should have understood. Well, as we continue in the story, verses 7 through 9 are a hist- is history in a nutshell. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So it's history in a nutshell. We find out two things. We are hiders. We're all hiders now. And so Adam and Eve invent the first religion. It's a religion of fig leaves. And every other religion in the history of humanity is a, is a version of fig leaves. How can I cover my shame? How can I cover and make myself seem more righteous than I actually am? But, but uh, the, the promise of, of eating the apple, it, it was anticlimactic. Oh, they understood good and evil. They just understood that now that they were evil. And, and so they had to cover themselves in their shame from one another and from God. And so we're now hiders. First of all, we hide from ourselves. We don't really want to explore what's going on in our own lives, and so consequently we hide from others. 
I mean, in an age that seems to, to, to value authenticity, it, it just, all it really values is false authenticity. I mean, isn't Facebook another way to hide? Look at me. Here's my managed life that you can interact with me with. And we're hiders from God. <laughs> we see this. The worst hiders in the history of humanity, they're like two-year-olds uh, hiding from their parents uh, on hide-and-seek. Like when my kids were two and they would put their head under the bed and their body would be sticking out. Uh, and so God comes in. And by the way, God is never looking for information, by the way. And when he asks questions, he's not like, man, inform me what's going on. Something's happening there. We see that we are hiders, but God is a seeker. My, my kids asked me this week, well, God, God said that, you would, that in the day they eat it, they would surely die. In a sense, they did die. The, the, the death and decay entered in the world, but spiritually they died. But, but also they lived. And we see grace and mercy at the very first pages. And God is seeking. It's history in a nutshell. We hide, God seeks. Paul, quoting the prophet Isaiah in Romans, says, There are none who seek God. No, not one. All have turned aside and gone astray. Everybody is a hider now. Everybody is desperately trying to hide. Now, we might hide through religious work. We might hide through rebellion with prostitutes. But either way, we're hiding from God. And so we're hiders now, and God is a seeker. And because he's a seeker, we see from the very beginning, that he's going to turn things up on its head. But, but I said at the very beginning that this passage is ultimately a mirror. So I just, before we even wrap this up and come to the communion table, there's some questions I want you to think about as we come to the communion table. Uh, the first question is this. Where do you struggle to believe in, the, in God's goodness and trustworthiness? Where, where do you struggle? Again, we hide from ourselves, so this is hard to answer. So you're going to have to ask the Spirit to reveal to you where, where are you struggling? Where, where do you doubt the goodness of God? So, so if, you have a, if you have a lust problem, if you have a greed problem, if you have a marriage problem, if you have a control problem, you have an anger problem, ultimately it's because you don't trust God in his goodness and mercy, and so you, you feel like you've got to manage. You feel like you've got to put yourself on the throne. And so we've got to, if there's any hope for us, we've got to expose that. See, when I was exposed as a seven-year-old, as a thief, it was God's grace to me even though I still feel shame about it. Because that's who, what my heart is. And I still have to be on guard of that. I still have greed. I, I still want things that are not mine. And if I'm not trying to steal from you, I'm trying to steal from God and saying, I can't really trust you with, with, with giving or anything like that. So how do you hide is the second question. How, how, how do you hide what fig leaves do you put on? This is history in a nutshell. We hide, God seeks. And so uh, this whole passage is going to be turned up on its head by Jesus. God puts Adam and Eve in paradise in a garden, and they bring darkness, sin, and chaos into the world. Jesus Christ in paradise in heaven, steps down from heaven into sin, chaos, and darkness to bring light and order and beauty once again. 
Adam and Eve are tempted in paradise. Jesus would be tempted in the wilderness after 40 days. The question of God's word would, would come up into the forefront, and, and Jesus himself would be tested with God's word, and he would respond accurately, not twisting, but rightly applying the word of God and saying, this is how I resist the devil. Adam and Eve were in a sunny, beautiful garden like a day like today, and they rebelled against their creator. They wrestled with their soul. I don't, it doesn't seem like very long, and they gave in. Jesus would be in a garden of darkness in Gethsemane, and he would wrestle with God. God told Adam and Eve, obey me about the tree, and you will have life forever and ever. He told Jesus, obey me about the tree, and you will be crushed. You will die. Adam and Eve took from the tree that which was not theirs. Jesus climbed up onto the tree to give us that which was not ours. So ask those questions now as we come to the communion table and are reminded once again of the gospel of grace. Even in this passage of the fall of humanity, we have the hint of mercy and grace. We hide, God seeks. Let me pray for us and then we'll come to the table once again. God, thank you for your word to us. God, our hearts are, are wicked in and of themselves, and yet you've, you've come down from heaven and glory to rescue and redeem, to overturn the tree sin, to overturn the lie, and even to overturn the sneer. God, as we look at the cross and we're reminded of your grace and mercy, it's at the cross that we see your goodness and your trustworthiness. And even when the world continues to sneer and mock us, when we fix our eyes on the cross, Lord, we, we can persevere. God, thank you that you are God and we aren't. Lord, help us to, to live a life of continual repentance. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do come to this communion table, and we're reminded that Jesus is a God of goodness and grace and trustworthiness. If you're struggling with whether or not God is really for you, this table shows you that he is really for you. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks to the Father, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. Eve took and ate. Those words would not be redeemed again until the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says to his disciples, take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sin, which is my blood. As often as you drink of this, you do this in, in remembrance of me, and you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns again. As you come before God this morning, having answered those questions, remember God is for you. He's seeking you. If you have anything in your heart that, that is for God, he put that there first. And that's evidence of his grace for you. So enjoy this time now. Enjoy this meal with your Savior. Amen.